Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our special guest, Dr. Burhan Garibet, who is with the Stem Cell Research Center in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Dr. Garibet, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. It's my pleasure. So, your interest is in stem cells, and if I'm not mistaken, your focus is on the use of uh, adult uh, stem cells for various therapeutic procedures. Uh, perhaps you could uh, begin this discussion by telling us a little bit about your interest and your focus areas. Uh, yes, uh, I work in a, in a big lab that, that uh, focuses and specializes in muscle-derived stem cells. So we work with populations of cells that are derived from the skeletal muscle. As you know, there are other stem cells that you can obtain and isolate from the bone marrow, uh, others from other sources as embryonic and fetal. And we uh, focus on, on cells obtained from the adult muscle, from uh, the muscle of the patients, for example, uh, who would have a certain uh, disease, so that we will isolate these stem cells and be nearer to a therapy when we want to inject these cells back into uh, a diseased organ in that same patient. Uh, we have extensive expertise on uh, studies done on mouse and rat models for mainly uh, musculoskeletal diseases, uh, muscle injuries, lacerations, uh, contusions, uh, bone, uh, bone uh, fractures, uh, defects in the bone, critical size defects in uh, uh, in either lung bones or a calvarial defect in the skull. Uh, we also moved into uh, the cartilage and the, and the heart, uh, myocardial infarctions, all in animal models. And we have been utilizing those cells that we, we isolate uh, from the skeletal muscle. We characterize uh, by surface markers and, and other uh, phenotypic characteristics, uh, inject them into these animals, and then track uh, these cells in the animal after a set period of time and monitor if there is any repair to the defect that we have created. Uh, so far the results have been very promising and the lab has shown in more than one publication that these cells go and do repair uh, bone defects and cartilage defects and myocardial infarction either directly by being involved and, and differentiating into resident uh, tissue uh, and, and, and the donor cells can be found uh, differentiated into that tissue or by affecting the uh, damaged area by what we would like to think is uh, a paracrine effect where they would signal other cells to home in to the damaged area or maybe they would encourage as our data have shown the formation of new blood vessels in the damaged area and thus increasing uh, the repair or enhancing the repair and, and making it uh, uh, perform better or go faster in rates. Okay, so thank you for this introduction. And there's a couple of questions that come to mind. So do I understand that your, your strategy is to use uh, patients' own stem cells for these therapeutic procedures? Yes, that's uh, exactly the idea. The, we, we are interested in, in this uh, adult source of stem cells for the, the, the particular reason of using those cells as what we call the autologous uh, therapy. 
and so our our experiments are really just uh, uh, having this uh, this this major goal in mind is that we want to use a source where we can manipulate the patient's or the donor's own cells to treat its uh, uh, illness. So I think that perhaps many of our listeners know that so that everybody's on the same page. Why use a patient's own cells as opposed to somebody else's? Uh, that's a very good question, and uh, the main reason, of course, is the, the immune response the body that the body would would have against any injected cells, and so the use of autologous engrafts, uh, as you know, would be the, the easiest way, the most uh, secure way to have very little immune response against these cells, and so you would guarantee their their the success of the engraftment. Of course, uh, uh, that also comes with with the uh, with the caveat of you have to make sure that you will have uh, no problem whatsoever in those cells in terms of genetic or chromosomal instability. Otherwise, the body would have no immunity against those cells, and so you would start a whole uh, set of problems if, if that is the case. The the uh, clinical uh, work that is based on on, on such um, uh, such premise or such ideas would only um, accept cells, obviously, if they are um, coming from a very clean source and from facilities that are following the latest uh, government regulations or federal GMP, as, as they call them, in terms of uh, uh, quality and, uh, and check for any pathogens before they are introduced into the patients. So you also pointed out that you're using skeletal muscle cells as opposed to other potential sources, perhaps the most prominent of which is bone marrow. Why skeletal muscle cells? Uh, we believe it's, uh, it's, they are readily available. Uh, they, uh, they are somewhat uh, easily obtainable as opposed to other sources. It's not as invasive as uh, other tissues. And the, the other thing is uh, the self-renewal capacity of those cells. As you know, when somebody uh, goes to exercise and they, they gain in the weight and the mass of the muscle would, uh, uh, would make them a very good source because you, you have this population that is always renewing the tissues. So we believe that it's, uh, they, they, they have um, a very um, superior quality in terms of self-renewal as opposed to, to other, uh, other, other stem cells. So obtaining stem cells from, let's say if you are working with the liver and you get this, your cells from the liver, uh, they carrying those cells in the petri dish for longer, um, a large number of, of um, passages or generations is not easily uh, obtained sometimes. And so to, for our research purposes, they have been a very good model because we can carry them for longer periods. It's also my impression that uh, to harvest bone marrow, it's done under general anesthesia, whereas harvesting muscle uh, tissue and deriving muscle-derived stem cells and that is a fairly simple procedure. That's correct. And sometimes the biopsies are very small in size that they can be obtained from uh, uh, you know, 18 gauge needles or, or devices similar to that that the clinicians would do under local anesthesia, even from uh, kids as they normally do in, you know, cytogenetics clinics or, or something on those lines. So, 
it's my it's my impression that the technology in terms of cell-based therapies and actually in terms of tissue engineering is perhaps more mature for soft tissue than it is for hard tissue like bone and cartilage. Uh, I guess first of all, is, is that a correct impression? Uh, that is correct. It's uh, there. There are sets of problems associated with with the, with soft tissue as opposed to uh, hard tissue. But the the diffusion rates of uh, whatever molecules and signaling uh, chemokines you have in in the milieu is easier in the soft tissue. Uh, also, making sure that your cells are mixed with the right uh, with the right scaffold or uh, something on the lines of glue, fibrin glue, etc. for um, a cartilage defect or a bone defect is, uh, is sometimes a challenge. So you have to be aware of that when, as opposed to just injecting uh, cells into a soft tissue like the muscle. But I, I gathered from your earlier comments that uh, you and your colleagues are making progress in both areas. Yes, that is correct. Uh, the, uh, the work uh, that we have been doing with uh, using our cells has, has been obviously with uh, uh, experts in, in several fields, the tissue engineering field, the polymers, uh, ceramics, uh, has incorporated uh, the use of, of certain scaffolds and uh, gel foams or sponges. Uh, also the addition of, of certain molecules like bone from morphogenetic proteins that will be you know in, in, embedded with the with that tissue engineered group of cells and then that will be placed in the defect. Uh, the defect will be monitored and the uh, the tissue engineered scaffold is usually resorbed and the cells can be tracked into the host tissue. You mentioned at the outset of our discussion about some of the focus areas that you have, and I recall you saying that the cardiac therapy was one you were exploring. Uh, perhaps you can just share with us again the, uh, those interest areas and maybe a brief insight into the, perhaps the most mature of these. Uh, yes, the, uh, the the cardiac field, we, we, are, we are not uh, uh, a group who, who are... Uh, working on, on the cardiac uh, uh, field per se. We have collaborators who are uh, surgeons, cardi cardio surgeons. We have some fellows that are rotating in the lab. They come from Japan. We have collaboration with Kimimasa Tobita and um, in, in Children's Hospital. And uh, we utilize ourselves in a, a myocardial infarction model that uh, these collaborators, in addition to our postdocs and graduate students, have created in, in the mouse and in some cases in the rat. So injecting, injecting a muscle cell, but it's not a cardiac muscle cell, comes with its uh, set of issues, as the literature would have, would show you. Uh, the, the cardiac muscle is different from the skeletal muscle, and we, uh, we worry about um, um, arrhythmias created in the heart. And that's why we embarked on this, on this research. Uh, the other thing is uh, the, the, the history of the, of the cardiac tissue developmentally. Where do you draw the line between this is a muscle that's going to become a skeletal muscle and this is a muscle that's going to be a cardiac muscle. So there are similarities, there are differences. But uh, basically we thought that we could use, again, this readily available source of stem cells to treat myocardial infarctions in, in the human patients. Um, 
there is uh, quite a bit of, of, of research on the use of typical muscle cells, uh, myoblasts, if you care to call them that, or even satellite cells. And uh, these, uh, we found, they are not as uh, proliferating, they are not as uh, resistant to oxidative stress in, in diseased organs as, as the muscle-derived stem cells that we, we work with. And so we in, we, when we injected those, our cells into a myocardial infarction, we got improvement uh, uh, that was very significant between experimental animals and control animals in the echocardiography, the ejection uh, rate uh, of, the, of the blood coming from the heart, uh, the ECG, and, and no, uh, no arrhythmias uh, forming, or uh, as opposed to uh, uh, the control animals. So that, that provides some insight into the, the cardiac areas that you're investigating. Uh, again, please share with us some of the other uh, promising areas using this particular type of uh, therapeutic approach. Uh, yeah, the, another area uh, that we are uh, we are working on and uh, we are making some progress in is the, uh, the, the idea of using uh, the human uh, skeletal muscle biopsies that, that we obtain uh, using approved protocols and uh, try and understand if uh, the information that we obtained from the mouse models using the information, the published information that we have on, on urine muscle-derived stem cells, if there is such a, a parallel between, between the human muscle and the mouse muscle. And we have obtained, based uh, on, on our recent findings, the uh, three fractions from the human skeletal muscle. The, uh, the first fraction is something we call myogenic fractions, just your typical muscle cells. Another fraction is an endothelial fraction. And the third one uh, is the myoendothelial fraction. This research has been uh, spearheaded by, uh, by Dr. Bruno Peo when, when he was in, in our lab and uh, in collaboration with, with our group. So the myoendothelial fraction, we believe, uh, the human muscle uh, is containing that fraction of cells that are obtained from the blood vessel walls that are in the muscle itself, in the skeletal muscle itself. And now we are uh, experimenting, just like we did with the muscle-derived stem cells and from a urine source, experimenting with this fraction and probably other fractions that we will uh, identify as we uh, keep working on the, on the human muscles and see if these are going to be uh, having the same uh, capacity to differentiate in the different organs. So we, we started sets of experiments where we are now injecting these myoendothelial cells into different defects. And again, uh, the data is, is showing that they are paralleling what the MDSCs obtained from mouse uh, do. And uh, we are very excited about this group of cells or the cells that we have obtained uh, from the human muscle in general because uh, this way we are really working with, the, with, with our target tissue, which is these biopsies that we are going to be obtaining from patients so that we will use them later on for uh, autologous engraftments for different diseases. So this is perhaps a good segue in that uh, you just mentioned patients, and uh, what you've described to us up to this point is what I would characterize as a fairly fundamental science in terms of uh, understanding the the mechanisms of uh, 
stem cells, the behavior of stem cells, and so forth. Uh, I know you have an interest in the, uh, the translational aspects of these studies as well. And you just described to us a moment ago that uh, your basic studies are with, with mice. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this getting from, a, from some successful results in a mouse to uh, the opportunity to uh, do a, a clinical assessment in, uh, in a human. Uh, th that's a good point because uh, I have this the working with the human or clinical trials in, in the back of my mind all the time uh, for several reasons. The, the chief of which is the, the telephone calls that we get from the public, the different patients or people who are related to patients who would phone the lab and they would say that we have read on the website or we have heard in the news from the coverage that is provided by the University and Children's Hospital about the success that you guys have had with this or that aspect. And I'm wondering if, if you would accept to volunteer so that you would try these cells on me. Or I was wondering if you would uh, accept my aunt to uh, go in because she is in a wheelchair and we would really, we are desperate to find something that will help her uh, improve in, in one way or another. And so on and so forth. So we do get telephone calls like that. that uh, would make me stop and think that there are really a lot of a lot of patients who are who are um, hurting one and also families who are desperate for uh, helping their their loved ones and so in my mind the ultimate goal should always be a, a clinical translation. However, they, it's not an easy story, as you know, and uh, I'm not very well versed on, on how to go about approving getting something approved for a clinical trial, but I, I understand that it's uh, it's different phases that have to be uh, thoroughly approved and after, after rigorous studies by the, uh, the FDA, the Federal Drug Food and Drug Administration and the, the U.S. government. And so that's what I try to tell these patients or these families, that you cannot just come into the lab and uh, we will do a clinical trial on you, you have to be uh, consulting with your physicians, uh, with your physician or, or your, um, the, uh, the experts in, in the field. We do, uh, we do publish our studies to pave the way for other uh, clinical trials that would come based on those. But that doesn't make us uh, clinicians doing this type of work in the lab. So I think as a generalization, and correct me if you have a different impression, that from the time that scientists such as yourself would publish some fairly complete findings until there's an opportunity to have FDA approval to begin clinical trials. We're looking at a year or two at minimum in this particular interval. Is that correct? And that's correct. I, I would say um, uh, two years is, is really a humble estimate. It might be longer than that. And of course then there's uh, typically three phases of a clinical trial. So. You're again looking at, at several years at least in terms of that particular transition. That, that's correct. And again, uh, people do ask if, uh, you know, if it's going to take that long before something is approved in the United States. Uh, my cousin has mentioned that his neighbor told him that they are doing this now already in China. Or should I, should I go? And um, in one case it was mentioned uh, China, in another case it was I was asked about Mexico, and I said I have no information about the the process of approving a clinical trial in these countries, and you have to be very, very careful 
when injecting cells, and especially autologous cells, cells obtained from your body into your body. They have to be uh, very clean, and they have to be very healthy cells, otherwise the chances of developing something like a cancer to treat a bone defect or an arthritic knee is definitely not going to be, it's going to backfire on you and you are not going to be achieving the, the optimal results. So, if I recall correctly, you have some involvement in trying to apply these types of cell-based therapies to a military injury such as compartment syndrome, is that correct? Uh, that's correct, John. We have uh, assigned the development of a compartment syndrome model in, uh, in a small animal and trying our uh, muscle-derived stem cells and the cells that we obtain from uh, uh, purifying human uh, muscle cells into myogenic endothelial and so on, like I mentioned before. And so we are experimenting at the moment and actually in the final phases of optimizing a compartment syndrome model in smaller animal. Uh, we are doing that on the lower leg of, of the rat and um, uh, studying what happens uh, in, the, in that uh, particular syndrome and how uh, carefully it emulates the conditions in injured servicemen coming back from the battlefield or even in the training field. And then the, our next phase is going to be trying uh, ourselves in this uh, um, severely damaged muscle and see how well do we regenerate that. And based on that, I'm hoping that we will be able to help, um, you know, injured uh, service men and women who come back with these uh, with these injuries, and they have to deal with um, long periods of rehabilitation. And if we can find something that would help them on the line of cell therapy, especially cells obtained from the other muscles in their body, that would be an an, an excellent outcome. So perhaps we should take a step back, and I'm not sure everyone understands what compartment syndrome is. Can you briefly describe that or define it? Uh, sure. The compartment syndrome, it's um, um, really a, a set of conditions uh, where a, a blast injury or a burn or other um, combination of, of those injuries would happen, usually extremities or even, even the abdomen. And the damage to um, the muscle, for example, would result in, in great pressure inside the muscle compartment, edema and, uh, and other conditions leading into constriction of the, the blood vessels and um, eventual death of the nerve leading into one area of the, of the muscular system and lack of, of perfusion, lack of, of blood circulation reaching that particular area makes it, one, very, very painful to touch and to handle and two, leads to a massive muscle injury due to lack of oxygen and nutrients. And while this is certainly a pervasive problem at the moment with injured military personnel, it certainly has applicability to the civilian population as well. Well, absolutely, especially athletes, and we have actually been uh, thinking about that. And in collaboration with the people in the UPMC Sports Medicine, we have been able to follow both what we are working on in terms of uh, creating the model and in a small animal, and what we see when they are examining these athletes who would have a certain uh, injury and that will qualify as, as a, a compartment syndrome injury. So I thank you for uh, sharing with us your uh, overview of your research and uh, your vision of where this might lead in terms of uh, various therapies. I uh, will put on the podcast website a link to uh, your 
Stem Cell Research Center website if any of our listeners want to further explore your activities and those of your colleagues. And as we conclude this uh, podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of uh, various topics that might be addressed. As you've heard before, we're not in a position to analyze particular cases via the internet or or through the podcast, but uh, suggestions in terms of topics can be uh, received at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And as we conclude, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors these podcasts, and we look forward to joining you in two weeks with another exciting interview. Thank you.